Welcome to Mayo Clinic q and I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this broadcast on July the 20th, 2020. We are incredibly fortunate today to have back with us our COVID-19 expert, Dr. Greg Poland. He's here to answer questions today about the latest in COVID-19 and uh, what everybody's wondering. Thanks for being here again, Dr. Yeah, Poland. it's good to be back. It's wonderful to see you again. It's been a little bit since we've recorded any of these, so Indeed. I'm interested to hear what you have to share today. Oh, there's so much happening. I mean, you know, we are, we are to the point where we will probably by the end of this month uh, get up worldwide to 14 million cases, uh, 600,000 some odd deaths here in the U.S. We're at about three and a half, headed toward 4 million. Uh, known cases with almost 140,000 deaths. We're seeing more and more children and young adults get in, getting infected. We're seeing the age of hospitalization move down to an average of 40 years um, from what had been uh, hospitalization really for people in their 60s and older. Um, but we're seeing a lot of positive movement. Um, we now have a recommendation that when you're out in public, a face mask is important. We're seeing large companies insist on customers wearing it. We're seeing some really positive movement in the vaccine sphere. We're seeing a lot of positive uh, results with antivirals and other repurposed drugs for treating COVID-19. So, you know, I think if we do the right things here, despite the resurgence, we can get this dampened back down and push this off until we've got these just on the brink vaccines ready to go. I am glad to hear you mention some positives. And so let's <laughs> jump right in and let's start with uh, what we know about the vaccine trials. I know there was one um, uh, published last week in the New England yeah. Journal of Medicine, and then um, there are a couple more this week as well. So tell us yeah, what you know. You're exactly right, uh, Helena. And, and in fact, last week, Moderna published their early results today as we're speaking. Uh, both AstraZeneca, uh, Oxford, and uh, Pfizer, uh, BNT Tech, uh, published their uh, early results. All three of them are favorable. There are differences between them, um, even differences in, in some of the platforms. But what they are all showing is the ability to induce neutralizing antibody, and at least in the latter two vaccines that I mentioned, the ability to induce a balanced immunity. One of the real keys, and I, and I should add, we've talked about it before, but we don't know which marker to best follow. Everybody's looking at neutralizing antibody, and that may be one, but it's pretty clear you also need T-cell or cellular uh, immunity, and uh, both of the uh, adenovirus-vectored vaccines do induce that, some of them after one dose. So uh, these will now, all three, will head into phase three trials in this month. Um, so that, you know, when you look at those uh, phase three alone, just those three trials, that'll be about 120,000 participants. So that'll take some months to do, but uh, it's consistent with what uh, I projected back, you know, six months ago when we were talking about this, is this is gonna be uh, somewhere around a 12 month plus process, and that will be unprecedented in the history of mankind to develop these kind of vaccines. So there are multiple different approaches, and um, some companies are probably closer than others. 
when do you think that we can anticipate to have a vaccine? And will there be multiple types of vaccines or are we likely to settle on one? Well, this is gonna be, I think, the hard part. I, I think we're gonna have and need multiple different types of vaccines. Kids may need a different vaccine than let's say a pregnant woman than, and different yet from an older, more frail person or an immunocompromised person. So we do need different kinds of vaccines. I think what's gonna be hard and confusing for providers and the public is they'll sort of stumble out one after another. They'll have differential efficacy, differential side effect profiles. Uh, they'll require two doses. And, you know, I'm, I'm just writing an editorial now. How will people think about this if the first vaccine, and I'm just making this up, let's say it's 50 or 60% effective, uh, but causes side effects in 60 to 70% of people. And a month later, when you're supposed to get your second dose, a new vaccine has come out, but it's 70 to 80% effective and, and, and has uh, side effects that occur in 20% of people. That's, that's going to be a confusing array of vaccines. We have never in the history of mankind produced multiple vaccines against a pandemic in so short a period of time. So this is going to be a process of education. To your point, once we have those vaccines, the really big push is going to be how do you manufacture, fill, and distribute that so you can get it into arms. No vaccine is any good if it's not you know, inside uh, people's arms. And that's, that's going to be um, a, a gargantuan task. These vaccines appear to take two doses. So let's just take the U.S. alone, 350 million roughly people. How are we going to get 700 million doses of vaccines in, in the few months after the vaccines released? It's going to be problematic. There's a lot of talk about face masks, pro and con. And um, I'm wondering what the scientific evidence is. Do face masks really work? And does it matter if they are cloth or the paper surgical masks? Yeah, uh, great questions. Uh, let me back up to say that Part of what we're seeing in this resurgence along the southern rim of the U.S. is a lack of mask wearing and of physical distancing. So we have watched in real time what happens when we ignore or don't implement those kinds of precautions. We have also watched countries in real time that have realized they've got a major problem, have mandated public mask wearing and very quickly seeing those cases be suppressed down uh, to manageable levels where we could go back to work, we could you know, go back to school, we could do the things that we wanna do. The other thing that I think is important is to realize that healthcare workers are being affected by this. It's not just you know, some vague general public. Uh, over 3,000 healthcare workers, our, our colleagues uh, around the world have died of COVID, over 500 of them in the, in the U.S. alone. I bring that up because uh, just a week ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital looked at the effect in their healthcare workers and other people working in the hospital and clinic pre-mask wearing and then once they instituted mask wearing. And it's really interesting, prior to wearing face masks between four and 48%, depending on what your job was, of those individuals were seropositive. Once they went to 
um, universal masking, it fell to 11 and a half percent. So very effective. Now it's not, it's not a magic bullet by itself, but very, very effective. Um, uh, Lancet has done a meta-analysis of over 172 different studies looking at just physical distancing. That turns out to be incredibly effective. So you start putting together mask wearing, physical distancing, hand sanitizing, and you now have a, an, a web of interventions that together is uh, as effective, I think, as a vaccine is going to end up uh, being. One other thing to, to mention in the journal Health Affairs, they looked at U.S. states that put in place mandates and states that didn't. The states that put in place mandates saw a 2% drop per day in the number of uh, uh, cases occurring. Now, that does, 2% might not sound big, but when you look at that as a whole, that means that intervention alone has about a 20% effect in decreasing numbers of cases. And that's probably a minimal estimate. So uh, I would say, and uh, for those that are interested, the Royal College of Physicians, CDC, WHO, all have these data on their websites. And all of them agree that while there are differences between types of masks, it's an important intervention that each of us can do. That's great. I, what you were saying about um, the data that's coming out is really interesting. I know that at Mayo Clinic, we had uh, a drop in um, employees being affected yeah. when um, universal masking on Mayo Clinic property as well as social distance mm -hmm. has been uh, instituted. Uh, I don't think we've published that data, but it is really good to know that, that it's working. Mayo was really ahead of the curve because uh, we started wearing masks right away, as you know. When we see patients, we have a mask, eye goggles, or a face uh, plastic face mask uh, on. Those are very effective, and people took them seriously because they're educated about the risk of this. The problem is when we're dealing with, uh, you know, individuals in the in the public who have seen varying recommendations, who have conflated it with personal liberties and things like that. And my answer to that is always you. You want freedom, wear a mask, and let's get this disease dampened down and done with. So you mentioned that in some areas, um, there's not as much masking, and that perhaps has something to do with these incredible numbers that we're seeing in some mm -hmm. of, particularly mm -hmm. the southern states. I was thinking of Florida uh, yeah. a weekend or so ago. I think they had 15,000 positive cases in, yeah. in one weekend. Um, Tell us about the current therapies for COVID-19. Have, have those changed since we last talked? Do we have more effective therapies now if people do develop the virus? Yeah, the, it's a great question. And, and the answer, very fortunately, is a happy yes. Um, as you know, we've learned a lot about how to ventilate individuals with uh, putting them on their stomach and trying to avoid ventilators where we can. Dexamethasone has been shown in a, in a great study, a well-designed study, to be helpful in more severe cases. Another trial of remdesivir uh, has occurred showing um, uh, an improvement by about 62%. That's a, that's a big uh, uh, increase. And then uh, we're starting to see trials of um, uh, beta interferon, IL-6 inhibitors, other antivirals and monoclonals, 
uh, don't want to leave out so-called bridge therapies like human convalescent sera. So, uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable. I know it feels like forever, but, you know, you realize that this really came to the world's attention as a pandemic in that February, March timeframe. And to think in just a handful of months, the amount of scientific study and literature that has been published, uh, three front runner vaccines with another 10 right behind it, uh, multiple theory, therapies that have now been shown to be helpful, understanding the need in, in a number of these cases for something like anticoagulation. This is truly stunning, unprecedented medical advances in, in an unbelievably compressed amount of time. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that uh, we're going to get this under control. And if you will, the last straw in doing that is getting people to adhere to these so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions, washing your hands, wearing a mask, physical distancing. When patients do develop COVID, you know, you're, we're now able to test for the antibodies, obviously, with serology testing. That there's suggestion that the evidence is that the, the levels of antibody fall rather rapidly mm. at, even after patients recover. What is the implication of that? Yeah, this is, this is something that is, uh, as I've explained it to people, kind of an immunologic mystery. So you're, you're very right, Helena, that, uh, for example, one study from Imperial College looked at 90 people who had been recently infected. Their antibody levels peaked by about three weeks after developing symptoms. By 12 weeks, their antibodies had fallen three to 23-fold. Nobody's really followed them out longer than that. Now, at one level, this isn't a surprise. We see this and knew this with seasonal coronaviruses. With SARS and MERS, we saw rapidly following an falling antibody levels and by two years, hard to detect much of an immune response. So the question will be, can they be reinfected? And if so, how severely? Emerging early data, and it's pretty anecdotal at this point, is that some people may very well get reinfected whether it's just as severe or has additive ill effects, we don't know yet. The other side of that coin is, it may well mean that even with good vaccines, that we're gonna to have to give boosters of that to keep antibody and cellular immunity you know, active and vibrant so that when you come in contact with the virus, uh, you, you do two things. One, you don't get terribly sick with it, and two, you don't transmit it to others. And so that would not be dissimilar to what we do with, say, measles vaccines. Uh, yeah, and influenza, uh, you know, would be one we're familiar with where, you know, certainly we as physicians at Mayo Clinic, we get that vaccine every year. Um, and that may very well be the strategy that we'll engage uh, with in coronavirus. Well, the weather is nicer in many parts of the country. Pretty hot right now in some areas and some storms going on, but everybody is antsy to yeah. get out and get moving and lots of people had summer vacations planned that they're altering their plans i saw that the rv rentals are up hugely this year which is really interesting what can you tell us about um getting back to life safely shopping going to restaurants um travel it's really a function of what kind of 
health and risks do you and your family have? And what sort of epidemiologic or geographic setting are you going into? At one level, I, I'm still urging extreme caution. Um, we have story after story, and I'll tell you about one locally here, uh, of a phys ER physician who took all the right precautions, even locked down his family. After months of this, they decided they were going to briefly let a cousin visit. They all got infected, and I think one of them has been hospitalized. And we've seen story after story like this occur. So, you know, we still have to be vigilant. It's been so long, I'm tempted sometimes to let my guard down. Um, but that's a, that's a dangerous thing to do. So I think depending on what setting you're going to go into, you want to you realize that there's only two ways to get infected with this virus. Breathe it in or introduce it to your eyes, nose, or, or mouth by your fingers. Now that sounds so simple, but that's really powerful information. So if you don't touch your face before washing your hands and you don't eat before washing your hands, you've eliminated one whole way of getting infected. The only thing left then is breathing it in. And that's where the physical distancing and the mask wearing turns out to be important. Some of the simulated studies have shown that without a mask, you're probably not actually safe until you get out to eight to 10 feet. If you're wearing a cloth stitched two layer mask, the amount that the virus travels is probably on the order of a few inches. So, so mask wearing is really a really important strategy as is physical distancing. So, you know, would I be a fan of going in and sitting down in restaurants? No way, not, not yet, especially in the Southern Rim uh, of the US. There may well be, you know, let's say more rural areas of the states where case counts are next to nothing and where you don't have a lot of visitors or travelers. That, that could be a different situation. Um, same with public pools. I would not be a fan uh, of that. Shopping malls, uh, not, not yet, would be my answer. You pointed out uh, camping and RVing. I think that can be done safely. And, and I think uh, you just have to kind of think through, how do I get gas? How do I get food? How, are we going to wear masks? How do we protect our hands? Those are, those are all things that we can do as we move cautiously toward, you know, sort of greater freedom, if you will, uh, without sacrificing safety. Well, next on the calendar then will be fall. And fall makes us think about kids going to school and our uh, college students going back to live in dorms and return to school. What are your current thoughts on uh, how this might, might, might go and should it and what should people do to be safe? I like the way you put it, current thoughts, because uh, this is a very dynamic situation. And we could see viral mutations. We could see early release of a vaccine. Those are the kinds of things that could really change uh, these early thoughts. But I've been working with a number of schools and colleges, and here's kind of how I think about it. If you have a kid that's uh, diabetic, asthmatic, immunocompromised, that's a really high-risk situation. And, and I would value uh, saying that's probably an online situation uh, for that child, or with proper precautions, bringing a teacher to the home. Uh, for example. That's another option that people are starting to think about. 
Um, so I think the online option is always gonna be the, the safest one. Is it the best one, particularly for early childhood education where that socialization, that face-to-face -face time uh, turns out to be important? This gets into a risk equation and a values judgment on the, on the behalf of those parents and, and, and school district. I think that they're going to be school districts where they have taken these interventions very seriously. They have suppressed disease to very low levels. I think they're gonna safely uh, reopen. I think it's fantasy thinking to think you're gonna do that in states that have um, record numbers of cases every day. Uh, a really important article just got released showing that kids age 10 and older uh, spread virus just as readily as adults do. So, you know, the worst thing you want to have happen is have lots of cases occurring in your community. Think somehow kids don't get it, put them back in groups into school and boom, now you spark outbreaks in each one of their homes, each one of their contacts. So it's going to be a, I think a very delicate dance and maneuver to figure out uh, and we have time yet. If people will take these interventions seriously, we probably have time to dampen this down before September and allow schools uh, uh, to reopen. I know schools are taking very seriously how are they going to distance, and they're trying some hybrid options like uh, students being cohorted and coming, you know, for example, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday afternoon, and the rest of the time online. So there's, there's lots of options out there. I'm optimistic that we can do it, but it's going to require the education and the cooperation of the public to do it. And I imagine that um, considerations for universities are very similar or even um, perhaps a little more significant given all the people coming from different areas of the country to live in dorms together. We know that there's some um, things that seem to spread when people live in close quarters such as bacterial meningitis. You're very right. I mean, you have these, these colleges I've been advising. You're in a situation where you have people coming from around the U.S. and around the world, some of them from hot spots, uh, so to speak. Um, and, and the dormitory and dining hall issues are considerable because you really, there's not a scenario where you can have students in individual rooms and still make it cost effective uh, to do it. Lots of questions about testing and how often do we test. Lots of questions about when and if a vaccine is available. Uh, will that be mandatory, for example, for, for college students, just as so many other vaccines are against diseases that spread epidemically, like, like you were uh, referring to. So uh, this, is a, this is really a complex plan that's being put together, but being well thought out, I think. And I think if we're looking for silver linings, and we always are, yeah. but, um, the fact that we can do so many things virtually now is just amazing. The, the amount of people who are able to work virtually, have meetings on Zoom. I've learned a lot about Zoom during this time and, and how yeah. to do things virtually. And the same thing with education. It's, it's pretty amazing. Well, you know, in the midst of this, I have to say, I, I'm actually pursuing a graduate degree in another field. And so all my education in this uh, field has been online. And I feel that I've been uh, able to get a very effective uh, education. Now I'm an adult learner, 
and what that would be like for younger children is a, a little harder for me to imagine. But I kind of think of it this way. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not very good about reading a book on, a, on my Kindle, but my kids have adapted to it and they read it very easily. So I suspect that online learning is something we're gonna do more and more, whether we have this virus or not, because of the diversity of classroom information and experts. You know, you might be trading off face to face, but what would it have been like in your junior high or your high school science class to hear lectures from uh, uh, well-known scientists from around the globe? I'd, I'd probably make that trade off. <laughs> well, I'm glad to know that you went back to school, Greg, because I was worrying what you were doing with all your free time during COVID. No, <laughs> I know, I did not expect COVID, that's for sure. <laughs> Well, now my last question for you today is a little bit of a human interest question that might be particularly interesting to you, in fact. Um, is baldness a risk factor for COVID? I have read this somewhere, and I'm wondering. Yeah, it's funny that you asked me that question. <laughs> um, well, you know, there's an interesting report in one of the dermatology journals that came out late last week showing that, in fact, male pattern baldness uh, was in, in their very small series, a risk factor for more severe disease. Now, I suspect that this has to do more with being male or male hormones, because the interesting thing is that they also found this true for older women that uh, were experiencing more of a male pattern baldness, baldness because of elevated androgenic uh, hormones. So, there is something to this. Um, similarly with blood type, for example, we've heard about group A being higher risk than, than group O. These are lots of individually small factors, including genes, environment, baseline state of health, et cetera, uh, even age, that together determine, and I wish we had an equation, but we don't yet, that determine what is your risk for having severe disease if you were to get infected. And even having said that, as, as we all know, and it's, it's, it's very unfortunate, you know, we see young, healthy kids and young, healthy adults um, getting very complicated, even fatal disease. So the, what we know about, the risk factors we know about, don't explain all of it. Um, so that's why I still tell people, you know, universal precautions are still in order here. This is a serious disease. And one thing we can talk about maybe at another time is emerging evidence that even people that have mild disease may still have evidences of some permanent damage to their body organs. So uh, I think we have to take this, and we are, very, very seriously. Oh, that's interesting. We'll put that on the docket for the next visit that we have. Well, it has been a real delight today to have uh, infectious disease and virologist Dr. Greg Poland here with us today again. And thank you, Greg, for being here. I've enjoyed catching up with you. Yes, indeed. Enjoyed catching up with you, too. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org, then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening, and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.